Welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm your host, Maz, and I hope you enjoy this episode. My guest today is Keen O'Driscoll. He is originally from Limerick in the southwest of Ireland. He completed his schooling and undergraduate degree at Limerick before moving first to Nova Scotia and then Wales for grad school. He joined the Australian National University in 2020. Prior to this, he completed his PhD at University of Wales, Aberystwyth, and worked at University of Glasgow. Importantly, he assures me that coffee in Canberra is superior to what he encountered in Ireland, Canada and the UK, and thus he's planning to stick around. His principal area of research is the intersection between normative international relations theory and the history of political thought, with a particular focus on the ethics of war. His published work examines the development of the just war tradition over time and the role it plays in circumscribing contemporary debates about the rights and wrongs of warfare. These themes are reflected in his two monographs, Victory, the Triumph and Tragedy of Just War, published in 2019, and The Renegotiation of the Just War Tradition, published in 2008. Kian has also co-edited three volumes and his work has been published in leading journals in the field, including International Studies Quarterly, the European Journal of International Relations, the Journal of Strategic Studies, the Journal of Global Security Studies, Review of International Studies, Ethics International Affairs, and Millennium. He was also the lead researcher on an economic and social research council project entitled Moral Victories, and was a 2019 Independent Social Research Foundation fellow. Or fellow. Ken recently served as the chair of the International Ethics Section of the International Studies Association. He's also a keen fan of Liverpool, not going so well at the moment, uh, and Munster Rugby, also not going so well. Uh, and uh, were it not for COVID, he would be attending live music at every opportunity. Ken, it's a real pleasure to host you at the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much, Maz. Thank you. But uh, the week could have been worse with the news from Liverpool and the English, uh, the European Super League. So, so at least we don't have to deal with that. <laughs> do, do they have fans yet? Probably not. Or just still uh, look no, out? I think a couple more weeks before fans are readmitted. Um, right. But with the turmoil in the European game at the moment, it's, um, I'm not sure if there'll be any fans left. So. Yeah, and if that's interesting uh, time to boy. Definitely, whether that's a smart move even to uh, to open it up. Um, before we delve uh, into the depths of just war theory and uh, other such lighthearted topics, uh, maybe we can start with a bit of your background. Uh, firstly, maybe how did you how did you end up in academia in the first place? Well, bef- before we get started, thanks so much for the invitation to have me along. Uh, it's very generous of you, and I'm I'm very flattered to be. Uh, involved in this podcast series, which which I've been following uh, with great interest over the past couple of weeks. I was saying to you just off air there before we came on that it's a little bit embarrassing to be set alongside some of the people you've spoken to who've done all these wonderful adventurous things and seem to have accomplished so much. But, you know, all of that said, it's it's lovely to be here. That's very nice of you to say, but I'm, but I must, but I must uh, object also. I mean, <laughs> I think, I think, uh, having read your book uh, recently, I think you've got quite a lot to say and quite a lot of things that uh, many of my listeners, both in Australia and overseas, will be uh, certainly keen to uh, keen to listen to. So, uh, yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely. It is it is my pleasure to have you on the uh, podcast. Well, one of the things that I'm excited for about this is is exactly. Uh, is exactly the conversation between academics and soldiers interested in issues 
pertaining to the ethics of war. So actually, I'm just as excited to be talking to you um, and to be learning from you about this stuff. But but we'll we'll bend back to that later, no doubt. You asked where I've come from or how I've ended up in this game. I mean, I guess there's a, you know, to, to, to paraphrase a friend of mine at UQ, Matt McDonald, it's a story of, a, you know, middle class white male hardship. And, um, <laughs> you know, there, there's no great struggle. I'm afraid, you know, I can't tell you any great, any great struggle here. But what I would say is when I was, when I was a teenager, I think I was quite impressionable with respect to war movies and, and the kind of um, the kind of moral dilemmas that I saw frequently portrayed in them. I remember being particularly horrified by some of the movies I saw about Vietnam um, and realizing when I was about 15 that a lot of the people portrayed in those movies were just a year or two older than me. And, you know, growing up in Catholic Ireland, I had this kind of, uh, you know, constant sense of my own mortality and sinfulness so I was very moved in these move uh, watching these films about these young men who faced these life and death decisions where they were put in a position to kill or be killed uh, and I found myself constantly worrying about what I'd do in that situation and what would be the right thing to do in that situation and um, so that's the kind of deep background. But I guess I started university. I was interested in history. I wanted to study history. And in doing that, I took an exchange program to upstate New York. And I took this small class, a class in this small university in upstate New, New York on war and international politics. And the reason I took the class was because it, um, it aligned with my diary. It didn't require me to get out of bed too early. Um, <laughs> As useful an excuse as, uh, as any, right? <laughs> you know, it's, it's on these things that uh, that are just uh, that our lives <laughs> turn. Um, so I took this class, and there were initially fifteen of us, and the prof was a real, you know, hard ass, basically. Uh, so that after about three weeks, there were only five of us. Oh wow! And um, and this class introduced us to the ethics of war, and I found it just utterly compelling, just riveting. He, he had us read Michael Walzer's book, Just and Unjust Wars, which, which you might have come across, pretty much cover to cover, which was a first for me in university. It was surprising how few books we had to read in university, but this was one of the first that I read cover to cover. And, and I was particularly provoked by the chapter in there on neutrality, which used Irish neutrality as a case study. Now, growing up in Ireland, Irish neutrality was presented as something that was uh, kind of an undimmed positive, that this is, you know, not only did it signal our independence from Britain, but it was also kind of progressive, a progressive position in international politics to be anti-war and so on and so forth. So to see Michael Walzer in this book, which I'd otherwise been enjoying, talk about Ireland's position as being morally perfidious and, you know, cowardice and so I found really provoking and I thought oh, I must I must look into that a bit more when I finished that exchange and came back to Ireland and then moved on with the rest of my studies I kind of just kept coming back to the ethics of war terrain I, I found those questions of conscience and how they connected with big issues of statecraft I found them really compelling and so yeah just at each successive stage of, of my schooling, I just I 
found myself writing my final dissertations on this general area until eventually I realized, hey, maybe this is what I want to do. And um, yeah, I, wrote, I ended up writing my PhD in the area. And, and it, you know, sometimes these things are fated, right? So I started my PhD. I, I interviewed for my PhD in March 2003, which you will remember is the, is the same period as the invasion of Iraq. And, and in fact, and I might have mentioned this to you before, I'm not sure, even prior to that, when I was doing my master's, I started my master's in international relations the same week as 9-11 happened. And in fact, I passed through, I passed through Newark about, I was, I think, on the first plane back into Newark after 9-11. First plane from Europe, certainly, back into Newark. And we got stranded there for a couple of days, or two days, I should say. Staying in the airport, soldiers everywhere, flags everywhere, guns everywhere. You could see the Twin Towers smoldering through some of the, you know, uh, from certain parts of the airport. So, you know, international politics, I was always going to end up studying international politics and issues of straight, statecraft and war and so on after that. Um, and then, as I said, 2003, when I was applying to do a PhD, the, the invasion of Iraq was just taking place. So, you know, my 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 interest was fueled and no, fascinating. So you, I guess you, you got a firsthand account uh, of the topics you wanted to cover and and study. You know, you saw it through your own eyes. I guess the militarized notion of you know, let's go and fight for our peace, uh, or let's go yeah. and defend. And if you remember, in the aftermath of nine eleven, you know there was just a swirl of ideas and and how do we respond to this? Because you know there was a period in which it was like, well, what are the rules now? Like, is it no holds barred? What happens next? Tony Blair had a great quote to this effect in one of his speeches when he said, you know, the kaleidoscope has been shaken, the pieces are in flux, we have to reorder the world around us. So there was this real sense of um, how is this going to shake out in the next couple of years? What are the, what are the laws and rules that are going to shape this, this coming maelstrom? Is that what your thesis was about? I mean, or, or what, what was your, your PhD thesis on? So my thesis was about, my PhD thesis was about the way that Bush and Blair picked up on and redeployed kind of certain just ideas from just war theory in attempting to sell the war to their publics. So in, in particular, I was interested in how they seemed to reanimate medieval ideas about punishment and evil in, in their case for the invasion of Iraq. So I, I essentially looked at yeah, how they how they engage these ideas and and um, and roll them out as part of their legitimation strategy for for the two thousand and three war. I mean, that's really interesting stuff. I mean, if if you're happy to 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 touch on that, I'd be happy to explore that a little bit as well. Because I mean, uh, that was one of those things that I found fascinating, particularly about Iraq. Um, you know, the axis of evil and the language surrounding. And, and I'm a communicator by background, so I, I, language and the use of language uh, is kind of my pet passion, so to speak. But particularly, you know, the you know you're either you're either with us or you're against us, uh, and then this idea that there is an axis of evil out there, and you know, by default, if you're not with us, you're against us. Therefore, if you're not with us, you're evil. Therefore, we are the just and the righteous and the you know the morally correct ones. Uh, is that what you explored, or, or what, what what were your kind of what, what what did you find? 
Yeah, that was certainly a part of it. So, so what I found in, in the broad, in the broadest brushstroke, uh, is that there were three principal justifications offered by the Bush and Blair governments for the invasion of Iraq. The first one will be familiar. That was the kind of anticipatory war argument about preemption, preventive threats, uh, preventive strikes, Iraqi WMD. The second one was the humanitarian argument, which was rolled out intermittently, which essentially went Saddam is a bad man and we'd all be better off without him. Look what he does to his own people. And the third argument was that um, Saddam is in violation of international law and you know moral codes of right and wrong, and therefore it, it's incumbent upon us to punish Iraq lest, lest they make a mockery of international law or, or, or of international society. And playing out in that latter argument, which, you know, when you think about it, and, and this was what got the thesis going, was to hear this language about punishment. In 2003, punishment as a cause for war, you know, it had a, it had a decidedly medieval accent. So it, was, it caught my attention. In the course of my research then, for that, what, what, uh, what really stuck out was, you know, Bush's predilection for the language of good and evil. I can't remember what the figure is now. I tallied it up in the book, uh, drew up, drawn upon research done by others. But, you know, Bush used the term some, uh, evil something like 53 times in his speeches around 2003. He used evil as a noun. So, you know, this war against terror was a war against evil as something that is out there and that must be eradicated. So there was this strongly Manichaean kind of quality to, to the rhetoric, which I consider deeply unhelpful because, you know, there, there's, when you, um, how would I put it? When you frame the enemy in such morally charged terms, you really load the deck against the idea of waging that war in a restrained manner. Hmm. Um, where, the, you know, where, where the enemy is depicted as evil, you, what is it Bob Dylan said, right? You don't count the dead when, with God on your side. You know? So if you believe you're doing the Lord's work against, against the agents of the devil, well, anything goes. So I was particularly concerned about um, just how charged some of that rhetoric was. And I found that it, it, you know, it connected with, it resonated with, it drew upon earlier tropes in kind of Christian political theology from St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, uh, to name a few, but that it, it took those ideas wildly out of context and ran with them in directions that probably wasn't, weren't very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And we can see Iraq uh, as it stands now. Uh, it's still paying the price for some of those decisions. So what, what, so what were your, I guess, findings or recommendations based on your research? What, what, I mean, if, if there is some kind of summary to take away from it, what would it be? I don't think I really came up with recommendations per se, but in terms of findings, I think the, there's one big thing to take away there, and that's... The, the discussion about the right to war, the Yusad Balam, what counts as a just cause for going to war, had we told ourselves through the 20th century been winnowing down and reducing to just one single track, which is defense against aggression, where, you know, this is the story of international law, League of Nations Charter, you have a UN Charter, so on and so forth. What we see in 2003 is a much 
and, and I think, by the way, I should say 2003 wasn't just a moment. It came at the end of a process that had been going on since the end of the Cold War. But what we saw was a, an opening up again, a widening of the use ad bellum basis for the use of force, where states were once again contemplating humanitarian intervention as a grounds for force. Yeah. So right, right to protect R2Ps, that, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, also this notion of policing violations of international law using military force, constabulary missions, as they were called for a period in the 1990s. So, again, there was this notion that or there was this reemergence of a notion that force is something that could be employed to manage emergent security challenges, that we could use war in a rational and constrained sense, you know, don't forget we were buoyed in this in this moment in this regard by the so-called revolution military affairs the development of smart weapons you'd had the end of the cold war so the un security council had been kind of reanimated so you had this real sense of optimism and, and of course uh, the balkans plays into this in a in a big way you know here is this car crash playing out in real time on television and Madeleine Albright saying, we have this great army, why don't we use it? And, uh, and a sense of, well, maybe we can, maybe we should. So you had the, suddenly the discussion about when, when it's justifiable for states to go to war had been blown open again, had been broadened after arguably 150 years of being locked down and made ever more restrictive. So, you know, that, that's the basic... Um, that was the basic finding. And if you want to put it even more broadly, I think what it's saying is that we're in a really, we've been in an adjustment and a readjustment period since the end of the Cold War, where the legal regime and the moral regime governing the use of force is being renegotiated. Hmm. Um, Why is that? What's your, what's, your, what's your feel on that? And I don't know if this is too broad a question, but uh, I'm just interested in your view on that. No, I was just going to say because you 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 you've you've you know, kind of made the point that it's since the end of the Cold War and and that that has been a significant shift. Just keen to hear what your thoughts are on that. So I think there was probably both a greater demand and and a, and a possible supply for the use of force in this period. So in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union, you had ethnic conflict break out across southern eastern Europe. Asia, Africa, so on and uh, on and on and on. So, you know, after the Soviet Union had left, you had all of these squabbles break out. You had Malia, Rwanda, you know, we can go on and on. So in these cases, you've got these open source where people are just watching on the news and saying, what should we do? Now, Heretofore, prior to the end of the Cold War, there wouldn't have been very much to do because any kind of combined international action would have been thwarted by disagreement in the Security Council. But suddenly, in the Security Council, there's a possibility of unanimity, of consensus, and of the states getting together to actually quench these brush fires, if you want to, I don't mean to be callous to call them that, and that's um, supplemented by the, I think, hubristic sense on the part of particularly armies of the Western liberal, liberal democracies that, you know, through smart weapons and, 
and technology that we can now wage war in more incremental, limited and targeted fashions with with much less spillover. You know, we, we can do this tidy and cheap. So I think those kind of very, you know, um, geostrategic and technological developments created created a set of circumstances where there was both a perceived need for greater use of interventions force and a greater possibility of it being conducted. And um, so when I did my master's, we were all terrifically optimistic about this. So I, I remember studying in about 1999 and reading Michael Ignatieff's work about the Balkans and saying, yeah, I'm right, we should get in there, you know, let's go intervene wherever we can, make the world a better place. And I think that 2001 and 2003 in Iraq really kind of had us wake up with a bad hangover from that kind of overextension and and that hubris right as you as you rightly pointed out the hubris and also the 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 irony can't be lost on us of uh the Iraq war right we went as you said the kind of one of one of the three principal reasons is that violation of international international law yet if i remember correctly at least uh we went without a un mandate to Iraq if the yeah yeah if memory um, serves no, no, yeah, yeah, you're correct. I mean, you, you can lawyer that, and they did lawyer that to say that actually what they were doing was they were, how would you put it, reanimating, to use that word again, the, the legal mandate from 1991, because the argument was Iraq had violated the terms of that ceasefire. So in actual fact, the resolution from 1991 was reactivated. Uh, the resolution justifying the use of force, permitting the, authorizing the use of force in 1991 was reactivated that was the american legal argument but yeah there was just layers upon layers of double talk and nonsense and i mean we could get into that if you if you want but it is um that i mean there was yeah some of it just uh i mean i think it's an as depressing as it was ludicrous yeah i mean and it's a and, and and as someone who's you know i've been to iraq since as a civilian and, and i've seen some of the aftermath of of that war but Perhaps more importantly, I've seen the, you know, we often refer to it as the military industrial complex, but I've seen the post-conflict industrial complex, uh, which, you know, is infinitely more expansive, I think, than the military uh, side anyway, because it brings the whole of government approach, right? And the whole uh, international aid community creates an entirely parallel economy that, and I've spoken to so many people in Iraq who know that they are on a you know on a you know revolving door they'll be back you know next year to um you know employ their statecraft or their particular skill sets that they're trained for whether that is in you know i don't know decentralizing the government or this uh, governance in iraq i mean something uh as uh likely to to be successful as the war itself all right uh, and we know that and they know that fully well they know that this is not likely to be successful in Bosnia. We have a saying: "You're emptying from hollow into empty," uh, and that's kind of uh, you know that's just a direct translation. But that's kind of what that entire adventure felt like. Notwithstanding, there are a lot of good people that are doing a lot of good work, and I certainly don't mean to cast a shadow on that. There are a lot of people doing a lot of good work, but looking at it over a period of time, you often wonder, you know, yeah. Was it all worth it? And, and under what justification did we even go in the first place? You know, do we not have enough uh, or, or, or are we reflecting enough on these decisions and how they were made uh, and the lives that uh, were lost because of it? So one of the 
games that's kind of um or a little a little thought process which has detained me or distracted me a little bit in the last year or so it's in teaching just war at the university one of the just war theory one of the questions that I sometimes get asked by the students you know can you give us an example of a just war I don't know if I was to put it to you uh right now what are there any wars in the post-World War II era that you would categorize as a just war? What would you say? What, what ones would top the charts, as it were? That's such an interesting question because, and, and whilst I'm obviously ethnically Bosnian and it's very easy for me to say that ought to have been a just war. It's also very difficult for me to isolate that war without the ecosystem within, it, within which it exists, right? So, I find it very difficult to distinguish one particular war from the rest that surrounds it, right? The, the, and I use again the term ecosystem or the geopolitical machinations that exist. And much like the Balkan War, right? I, I, that war, there were many more players in that war than meets the eye, so to speak, or the most obvious, right? So easy. And again, I'm probably going to be uh, chastised for this by the Bosnian community, but it's so easy to throw the Serbs out and say it was their fault. Yeah. Okay. So let's, you know, if we're looking at it purely kind of, uh, you know, guns and bullets and that sort of stuff, who fired for all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Sure. There's an argument to be made, et cetera, but it, it never existed. That dynamic never existed without, you know, say Germany and Austria first, being the first two countries to uh, accept Croatian independence, right? Knowing, probably knowing fully well that this is escalating the chance of war exponentially. Now, that incidentally did, you know, the first shots were fired post Croatia declaring independence. And I'm not saying Croatia shouldn't have been made independent. That's not, that's not the point I'm making. But I'm just, the point I'm making is you can't isolate, you know, the war in the Balkans uh, from all that politics everything that exists around it right and you can't isolate you know us uh, politics in the balkans you can't isolate british politics you can't isolate uh, or, or or exclude say turkish politics in in bosnia you can't exclude yeah you, know, you know all of russian politics through serbia in bosnia so there are all of these different i guess levels of interaction and then to say well that's a just war well where do you at which point do you start calculating it's it being a just war, right? Yeah. Because the further you peel back, the more you realize that, hold on, there's multiple links, there's historical links here. Well, you know, this guy's pissed off because this happened in, you know, the 13th century and blah, 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 right? It's just how far do you go and nothing exists on its own. So therefore, how do you cast this almighty judgment to say, well, that's a just war? Uh, and I think you finish your book really well. I think you, you quote, is it, uh, is it Ken Booth? Uh, you know, just war is just war. And I think that's a beautiful summary of, of, of this very point that, okay, let's, let's, not, <laughs> let's not pretend, which is what kind of I find, kind of feel what just war theory does. It's, it's great and I, and, I, and I endorse it, right? But I feel like it's a bit of a Band-Aid, right? Here's a, here's a way to make this seem compelling sufficiently so that our people will believe it and, and, it, and it will feel right and we can give ourselves a pat on the back and the win, you know, we are on the right side of history, quote unquote. Um, so I know that's a really long-winded way. There's, to... loads, no, there's loads of stuff there for me to unpack, actually. I'd like to come back, hopefully, to some of the stuff about the ecology 
of the of the Bosnian war and the notion of just war theory as a band-aid or as a kind of pretend as a kind of a a shallow response but in, in, let me say in the first instance I, I take all of what you say I think is exactly right when you talk about making the ascription that this is a just war that's not that it's always a question of where do you start right and whose starting point you choose and, and whose justice is it anyway right whose justice am I actually fighting for yeah sorry you're, I mean, knee, you you're knee deep in it at that stage already but um one of the you know when I put that question to my students one of the wars that sometimes comes up uh, less so now because you know students are <laughs> they're younger these days um, <laughs> is the 1991 gulf war right insofar as you can talk about a historical pretext regarding the Rumelian oil fields and all of that kind of stuff, but most people are pretty satisfied to say this was an act of aggression where Iraq rolled across and sought to annex a neighbor. It was, you know, while there might have been some wrongs committed against Iraq, they weren't sufficient to, to warrant the use of force in this way, and that if the international community didn't respond, this would have been a real dereliction of duty. And then the nature of the response was under a UN Security Council resolution. It was limited. It was discriminate. They didn't march all the way to Baghdad. They simply kicked Iraq out of Kuwait and then rolled up the invasion from there. And it was, uh, I think, a hundred hour ground war. Now, there are, I'm not saying it was conducted perfectly. There were, there were serious problems with the conduct of the war i gather not an expert but but i gather um, that there were issues there but one could make an argument then that this was if ever there's a kind of a clean contained just war that's responding to a very um discreet and clear-cut act of aggression this is it and where the the interventionary force acted in a limited and constrained way here we are and yet you could say this was the war that ironically set the cat among the pigeons, to mix metaphor. This was the war that set Western troops in the Holy Land, that gave fringe lunatics like bin Laden and those around him the oxygen they needed to have a run at local regimes and to weaken, to, to, to weaken the appeal of local regimes in the Middle East to... Um, to create a vacuum, right, ultimately. Yeah. Exactly, which, you know, the effects of which we're still dealing with today, right, in terms of what that invasion did to Middle Eastern politics, in terms of putting this kind of perversion of Islamic fundamentalism on the, on the map there, giving them a cause, giving them something to rally around, giving them um, a focal point. So I raise this just by way of saying that, you know, that there's deep irony there and that even the most, you know, ostensibly the most just war we can think about in this particular period comes with a hugely troubling legacy, which we still are paying for in blood and treasure today. So a bit like you, I have, you know, this, this, this little thought experiment just leads me to be a little bit sceptical about what just war theory offers or what it is. But I'm curious to know for me, why you consider it to be a sham or shallow or, or a band-aid, however you wish to put it. I mean, it's a, I'll, you know, 
say first that this is the best we've got, right? And I'm happy to have deployed under the auspices of the just war theory and having thought about it, you know, to some lengths in, in my application of duty in, say, places like Afghanistan. But I also, the, I'm, I am perpetually bothered by this idea, and I think your book addresses that well, right? That it's only, right, so there are the seven principles that we have for just war theory, right? One of them is, you know, what is the right attention, just cause, uh, legitimate authority, proportionality, probability of excess, last resort. Last resort in particular, right, is one that bugs me. At which point do we say it's the last? And, and I say this, I say this firstly as a child in a conflict zone. So someone on the receiving end of some pretty serious artillery, hiding in a, in a, in a cellar at the age of 10, uh, wondering where this is all going to lead, right? And then fleeing that horror uh, to find myself a refugee in Germany, right? So, so just through context, I wonder what is the last resort? You know, at which point? Because ultimately, while we might have the precision weapons, while we might have, you know, all the right intention, while we might arguably have a just cause, in every war, more recent ones included, it is those who have absolutely nothing to do with that war that end up paying the highest price, right? So the the, the so-called non-combatants or civilians, and whilst we have all our Yusin uh, Bello, right? We have all our, all our rules of engagement. We have all of our uh, Geneva Conventions. Inevitably, civilians will die and they are the price ultimately of, you know, our uh, application of just war. So, you know, there's a bunch of things that, that and I'm not really, forming a coherent argument here, but that last resort, for example, would be one that I would really question. Also, I'd say the probability of success. We can only go if there's a high, pro or, you know, it is only a just war if there's a high probability of success. While I understand the logic behind that, you know, that, you know, there's, it's, it's, it's not worth justifying uh, needless, or, or, you know, we do this to prevent needless suffering, um, arguably of, of our own forces, right? Because, you know, the civilians will suffer anyway. But, how how does that marry up with justice? So if there's if I'm fighting a just war, and what happens if there's a low probability of success? Should I just roll over and take the the tyranny as you know as the status quo now? Is like where do we draw the line? It it, it all feels very much like it's a um, okay. How do we explain this? Right? How do we justify this? We, we've decided to go to, to to Iraq in 2003. How do we justify this now? Now we need some nice theatrics. We now need some really powerful rhetoric. We need the whole kind of idea that it's a just cause. It's you know good versus evil. You know let's have let's have some nice images in the uh, United Nations that show these WMDs that we never then subsequently found because uh, arguably they didn't exist because it was what poor intelligence or whatever. Yeah, it just all kind of. It just smacks a little bit of, of, of self-righteousness that doesn't necessarily consider the true cost of war. So and, this is... Yeah. Sorry. No, no, I was just... Yeah, that, that's... that's Yeah. In fact, I'm happy that you interrupted me because I, I, I'm not really sure where I'm going with it. So... Uh, no, I'm sorry. I, th I, thought, I thought you were finished because I, I think that makes perfect sense to me, what you were saying. And the reason I asked put the question the way I did is because it occurs to me 
that I read and teach about the just war tradition. And I've been interested in this for about 15 or 20 years, as I say. So kind of working my way through slowly, gradually, you know, the various texts and uh, historical moments associated with the just war tradition. So be that Cicero or Augustine or Thomas Aquinas or Hugo Grotius and reading those texts. And I'm not an expert in any of these periods or, or, or thinkers in particular. So just trying to understand what they were saying and talking about and how those things might speak to us today. So that's been my interest. And within that, I'm, it strikes me that's worth doing because it tells us something about what humans have considered grounds worth killing for, grounds worth killing, causes worth killing and dying for. And I think that cuts to the heart of politics and to the human condition. And I find that how we've made those choices, the lines we've drawn in different historical periods across different societies, fascinating. But that's a different thing than saying that tradition is generative of a template of rules and principles and criteria, which I'm now going to pass over to you, the soldier, who is going to go and live and die by this code. And, you know, I, I understand that you've taken Dean Peter Baker's course, which is called Ethical Armoring. And the idea being that you armor yourself ethically, you can armor yourself against moral injury by acting ethically and by, you know, having a code, as it were. A man must, a man must have a code. But, you know, for somebody like me, I wonder, is it, does it withstand that stress test? You know, for people like yourself who, who've, been on the pointy end of things, who've gone to places that somebody like me is simply not going to go. What does this theory look like when you come out the other end of it? Does it hold water? Do you feel that it served you adequately? Did it give you a good guide for what counts as right conduct and wrong conduct in those moments? Quite frankly, for me, speculating, I don't know. I imagine that there's something of the existential about all of this, that you have to find yourself in a situation to figure out what you really believe that it's permissible to target this person, but not that person, or that you're right to be where you, you know, that you've, you've made the right decisions in life that have put you where you are. I'll just pick up on that because I think it's a really powerful point. And, and just to refer to that kind of armoring piece or ethical armoring, I think we're, as a, as a defense force, we, we're, we're realizing that this is an important piece and this is something that is being injected into our training continuum because it is absolutely, absolutely important. I think how does it apply? And, and I, I can't say I'm, I'm, you know, I've never been on front lines. That wasn't my, that wasn't my gig. I had various different ethical challenges to, to, to face, but it has to form part of how we do business. Now, I also understand that for a soldier on the front line, there's not necessarily time to speculate on the finer points of, you know, Yusin Bello, you know, can I do, you know, it's, it has to be instinctive. But therefore, we need to inject it into the training cycle to train for those scenarios and for those circumstances in the most honest way possible. And when I say honest, I mean, we need to be honest with ourselves. You know, we are not robots we are 
complex beings that carry our own baggage that respond to different circumstances. And I've interviewed a bunch of people now for my podcast who've dealt with, um, you know, moral injury or PTSD and that sort of stuff. And, and, and the message is consistently the same. None of us are immune to this. And also none of us are, none of us are the, we, none of us are the same, right? It is, we are unique in how we are likely to respond to a situation. So therefore we need to train for this. We need to talk about this. We need to explore these topics at all levels from, you know, the foot soldier to, you know, the senior officers, because we need to have this embedded into our everyday discussions about war. And, you know, I've spoken to Mike Martin on my podcast as well about this kind of soldier philosopher concept. We need to embody this as an organization because it, the cost is too great if we don't, because then we find ourselves in this perpetual cycle of, again, justifying, explaining what happened, why it happened. And, and all of those have good reasons, but if we don't understand what's likely to occur, if we create given conditions, then we're going to find ourselves, you know, caught out. Uh, and I think that's, you know, arguably what's happened, you know, in in in, in a number of uh, theatres where we've been, where we've been kind of caught out slightly with, uh, you know, some places worse than others. So yes, I think that's a really interesting point, and I think it's a it's a very very welcome change for me to uh, have participated in Dean Peter Baker's uh, training because I think it's great. It was it was actually really useful. And the next stage now is to actually contextualize that within the ranks so that we can actually start talking about this because ultimately we'll find that, well, war is not going to solve the problems that we're seeking to solve. Sure, I'm not a naive optimist or some you know idealized pacifist that thinks that you know war is not the answer. I think war is more often than not, not the answer. In fact, I think war is absolutely the last resort. And I still in my head cannot, you know, to go back to your question, is there a just war since uh, World War II? Again, even, you know, World War II, of course, you know, it's sacrilegious to say it wasn't, of course, but uh, it was a just war. But even there, you need to start looking at what caused war. And this is where, you know, I'm involved again. So, you know, dropping an atomic bomb, two atomic bombs on cities, you know. Exactly. The firebombing of Hiroshima and... Uh... Yeah, and Dresden and so on. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, again, one of the things that it feels to me, like, and I can just to take sort of Galtung's con conflict triangle, which, which you, you've, you've probably come across, but he has that kind of ABC triangle, attitudes, behaviors, and contradictions. For me, so attitudes, you know, so a contradiction that exists between say two warring or two, two, two parties in conflict uh, will shape their attitudes towards each other, which will then ultimately drive the behaviors, which will reinforce the contradiction. And so, so on it goes in, you know, around a circle in this triangle, excuse my poor <laughs> geometry there. But, you know, to me, where, where just war theory sits is between attitudes and behaviors, right? Attitudes, I'm, I, I have an attitude towards this other, this enemy. Now, how do I justify and explain these attitudes that will ultimately drive behavior. Now that behavior might be sanctions, right? Or, or just kicking out ambassadors or whatever it is to ultimately, you know, dropping, you know, as you, as you rightly pointed out, dropping nukes uh, on cities. That to me, just war, just war theory sits in between those two somewhere, right? Between attitudes and behaviors. And perhaps I'm naive in my very rudimentary analysis of it, but that's, uh, that, 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 that's how I see it. And that's perhaps my struggle with it as well. 
Well, let me pick up a few things there. I want to come back to the point you make about um, solving problems in a moment. But in the first instance, let's start with the with the immediate problem in front of us. Um, and there is an immediate problem in front of us. So just war theory starts about here and round, round about now and uh, about now and round about here. In, in other words, we wake up every morning in an unmade bed. This is not a perfect world. We have militaries, we have military conflicts. These things are going on. So far as we have these things, it's incumbent upon us to think about the set of rules which, by which we might bind them and, and, and operate them. So unless you want to stick your head in the sand, it strikes me that we need to think seriously and stringently about, earn, earnestly about the kinds of moral rules that we would attach to the operations of our, of our militaries. And that's where just war theory comes in. And, you know, the kind of classes that you took with Dean Peter Baker and Dean's a fantastic scholar and does fantastic work in this field. Why, that's why those are so useful. I had my, my first taste of them this past year and I found it really interesting because I went in and not being accustomed to teaching practitioners, to working with practitioners in this domain, I think I got it all wrong. Sorry, where were you teaching? Uh, the Australian Defence College. Right, okay, so, so teaching active service members, yeah? Yeah, it, it was a, a set of sessions we'd um, convened on ethics and the ethics of war. With Dean Peter Baker, actually, Dean Peter Baker and myself and Charles Weller had organized it. It was um, it was a lot of fun. It was really interesting for me to to see, you know, how people who've served react to some of this material. And what I, what I found was this. There was that emphasis on exactly what you drew attention to a moment ago. We need a set of rules or codes which are almost automatic which are intuitive such that in, if we're drilled in them such that in the moment we, we uh, automatically default to them. These are reflexes. And we want simple, clear, programmatic rules of action that then we can just plug in and go with. And that makes a great deal of sense if you're going to be on a roadblock or something like this. I, I understand those pressures. On the other hand, what I was coming in with was a sense of every situation you face is unique and is to some degree indeterminate. And these rules that we're talking about require interpretation. They're not clear. They don't legislate for the specifics of the situation that you're going to find yourself in. Rather, you're going to have to try and unpack them and think about casuistically about how they apply in this particular moment. In other words, in for me, in teaching just war theory, what I think is important is not learning the principles themselves, but learning the logics behind them. So that in those moments where you see that the logic or that the principle doesn't quite fit here, you can still reason through what ought I to do. I'm not sure if that's, if that makes sense or if that's clear, but you had this this real tension between we need something ready to go and me say, no, 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 you don't need the rules. You need the, you need the user's manual. You need to read the background coding. And what was the response to that? How was that received? I, th I think, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. I think in the first instance, I think it didn't go across well because 
I think I wasn't giving people what they wanted. But when I explained, I think this is why I'm talking about it this way, because there's never going to be a moment when it's clear who's a non-combatant and who's a combatant, or there's very seldom going to be that moment. So you're going to have to, you know, get in behind and fiddle about with what goes on behind the front of those principles. I think when I, when we talked about that, I think there was a greater appreciation for, oh, right, okay, especially people with command responsibility kind of saying, yeah, maybe I do need to think about this a little bit more than just thinking about these as a set of prompts or reflexive, re reflexive rules. In any case, we had that conversation. I thought it was very interesting because, um, you know, it, it, it did bring home to me exactly what kind of military personnel might want from this stuff. And, you know, this might simply be reducible to the difference between a soldier's perspective and an academic's perspective. I'm looking for the complexity. <laughs> you know, somebody else is looking for it to be practical. And and that is really the, the uh, and I agree that that would be the tension because many soldiers, officers will, will say that I don't have the time for that because, you know, the lives of my soldiers are on the line, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I also think, and maybe this is my own bias coming in, the more time we spend debating and discussing this stuff, we face a risk of going, holy shit, what am I doing? Right? I want to come to that. I want to come to that. Yeah. Um, for me, uh, in, in that first instance, in that kind of two-sided conversation, I've been brought in to be an egghead, right? So that's why I'm there. I'm there to give the complexity. So there's no point in trying to pretend to be a soldier, you know, because that's not what I do. And the people in the room already do that. This is where I think people like you are so important and the kind of work that you're doing with this podcast, because it serves as a nice translational device between saying, okay, let, let's hear what these people are talking about and let's kick it about for a while. And let's think about how it speaks to what we do in a more leisurely, reflective manner. And, and I, we might come back to this. Uh, I think work of the kind that you're doing right now, and there's other things that we could do, are a really, really positive development. And I, I especially think the podcast platform is great for this kind of stuff because, you know, a member of a military can put a, his or her earphones in, quiet time, engage with it in a quiet way, reflective. You don't necessarily, you don't, you don't have to perform listening to it. You know, you don't have to nod along or anything like that. It can be a very personal, reflective experience. And, and people can pick it up in their own time. So I think that's, this is, we, we need more of this. But on, on your broader point there about it, the more we talk about this, you know, why do we do it? I, when you were speaking about your, your experience as a 10-year-old hiding in a cellar while ordnance is landing around. You know, the question did occur to me, war is the problem there. So what leads 10-year-old you to then think that war or joining a military might possibly be a solution to this as well? Um, you know, and I, I, would I feel, be, I feel I like would, I'm in therapy, but it's a very astute question. <laughs> I, I would lean more towards the pacifist position myself, not quite all the way. But so I was quite struck when I heard Dayan speak in the earlier podcast about 
the examples of good soldiering that he saw. And, and, you know, the perspective of coming out of the Balkans and seeing UN peacekeepers and cheering them and thinking, you know, this is, if not a good, at least it's stopping something bad happening or something worse happening. But even so, you know, when we, and you talked about the ecology of these wars, Bosnia, you know, um, the broader ecology that they take part in. And Dayan spoke beautifully, and I, I, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with him in any way here, but, you know, some of the kind of ways that some of this language plays out sometimes, notions like soldiers as protectors, Dayan didn't say this, but as warriors and so on. If we want to talk about a broader ecology, there's an ecology of ideas as well, that soldiering perhaps, and some of those ideas which support and sustain the idea of soldiering, also propagate the problems that it, that it addresses, you know, muscular masculinities, you know, um, aggressiveness, virility, prowess, uh, that we respond to problems physically and militarily and toughness is a virtue. And so I, I, I you know, I, I find it fascinating. And uh, so I guess for me, I, t- I tend to see war as part of the problem and just war theory too, as part of the problem as well as part of the solution. So when you say, the more we debate this, the more we ask ourselves, what the hell are we doing? I, I couldn't agree more. Because I think that's a genuine, that's a, that's a genuine, I don't want to say risk, right? But perhaps it might be a useful word, useful term. Because the more we empower our decision makers in combat and in war, and I don't know, I mean, I'm probably going to get chastised for this as well by the you know by the officer corps or something but i feel like the more we think about this the more we realize that hold on it's it's a waste of time because it actually war begets more war even if we couch it as a victory uh, there's no winners in war and i think again to use your book again uh, just war is just war Um, whichever way you skin that war cat and again, we've seen this in Iraq. We went and we had a just war, let's say, and a just victory, and it was a it was a proportional victory, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then it, you know, the, the ones who were who lost certainly didn't concede defeat and say, "Sure, let's uh, we'll join your camp." Uh, it festered more violence, more hate, even though it, it might have festered over a period of time. It then reared its head again at a point down the line. And I think, again, there's an action-reaction and a there is a relationship there in this, again, I'll use the term ecosystem, right? That if you if you push me, I might just sit back for a while, but the fact that you push me will stick with me. I'll pass it on to my son and daughter, Delpa, et cetera, et cetera, right? So somehow it just doesn't strike me as the most efficient use of our resources, of our people, of our time to drop bombs on each other, you know, in the hope of forcing peace, <laughs> you know, th- which, which seems to be a, a, a conflict. I'd, I'd pick up on that. And I'd... Have you read Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck, the little novella? Uh, I know of it, but I haven't read it. Okay. So it's a really nice little book. It's about 80 pages long. And in the course of it, you've got two ranch hands, George and Lenny. And of course, the story is pretty well known. So some of, some of your listeners will, will know it, of course. Lenny, I guess in today's language, has learning difficulties. He's a big bear of a man and he's quite simple. 
intellectually challenged. George is his buddy. He's his kind of older brother. He's not his brother, but he's kind of older brother type figure who's a slightly cunning kind of scheming guy. Uh, and the two of them are ranch hands in kind of depression era America, traveling from farm to farm, doing casual labor. And it's a miserable, tough life, but they've got one another. Right. And that's what sustains them. And it's a kind of a marriage of convenience, but there's a beauty to this friendship. Right. George has Lenny and Lenny has George and they're an ill-matched couple, but it's, it works. It works. Yeah. Both, they both find something in one another. And they arrive at this ranch and poor old Lenny um, finds himself in a pickle where he's being essentially manipulated and he's pushed into a corner and he reacts in a way that's intended to be harmless, but he ends up killing the rancher's wife. He, he doesn't intend to do it, but it happens. He doesn't know his own strength. He's got learning difficulties. It, this is how it plays out. So they go on the run, the two guys together. And George is faced with a dilemma along the way because he hears the posse coming out looking for looking for Lenny and he knows what's going to happen and he knows they're going to find them and he knows that when they find them that they're not just going to kill Lenny they're gonna it's going to be brutal so what George does instead is he takes Lenny to Lenny's favorite place and he sets Lenny into a reverie by reminding Lenny of a daydream that they have of setting up their own farm and there'll be rabbits on the farm and they're going to live together and they're going to be happy and so when all of this is going on, when, when Lenny is thus distracted, George shoots him. And it's an act of love, right? He's, you, this, is where, this is why I'm bringing this up. It brings you to a moment where you say, how do I judge that? What did George do? Was it right or was it wrong? And on the right side, you could say, Lenny had violated the order. Now, however rough and ready that order was, however imperfect, it was still the order and he was going to be punished for it. And actually what George did was quite noble. He didn't want to do this. He didn't want to kill his friend, but he knew it was coming and he decided to, to take on the burden of doing that himself precisely so his friend didn't suffer. So he lived by the rules of the day. He upheld them even at personal cost. It was out of love right for his friend that he that he took this on so what a self-sacrificial act and that to some degree is the paradigm of just war right that we are willing to put ourselves in that position and to take that hit to carry that burden of responsibility that others don't that ring of power that others won't bear to do the hard jobs but on the other hand as you say when you read this out George then is just left alone. Both men, Lenny's dead, but George is also dead inside now. And the world is in a better place. The spiral of conflict isn't ended. This is simply one more chapter precedent to the next, to the next, to the next. And there's no argument to be said that what George has done has made anything better or resolved anything or righted any wrongs. It's simply more blood. So I, I really like that story. And it's a short little novella as a way of picking out and of saying, 
do you agree with what George did? And use that as an allegory for just war thinking, saying, you know, do I see just war as something noble and heroic and self-giving that needs to be done and that somebody's got to do it? Or do I see it as a tragic waste of time that just perpetuates the problem that it purports to resolve? That doesn't help us escape from our problems, but actually compounds them. Now, when I was reading that book, I also happened to be reading obituaries of British soldiers in Afghanistan at the time. And when I read those, whatever they might be, 150 words about these young men and women who were, who were killed, and this is about 2012, 11 years into the war. And, you know, it's even more pertinent today, the same week that, of course, the Americans and the Australians have announced their withdrawal. You have to wonder, what was that, what was that for? You know, you read these stories and it would say something like, Jim was an adventurous, loving son, a brother of two. He liked water skiing. He played golf. He had a streak of mischief about him. And you just thought, wow, mm. you know, what did you, what did you give your life for? So I don't know. Sorry, I've just been no, no, no. That's no, that's a that's really powerful, and again, it resonated with me really strongly because I mean, it's a it's a particularly that war. Uh, it's one that I think we ought to reflect on deeply, not least because of the price we paid, and Australia's lost forty-one soldiers in Afghanistan, but also because of the lives that were lost more broadly uh, of you know Afghan people, and I think one of the key lessons that we need to take from there, just war or not, is almost irrelevant. It's the misunderstanding of the context within which we we fought a war. Sorry, let me phrase that. We fought a different war than we thought we fought. Right? We thought we were fighting this kind of, or at least that was the narrative, we thought we were fighting this kind of Taliban enemy, whatever. And of course, yes, there were. There were the hardcore Talibs who, you know, sought to do us harm and so on and so forth. But there's also a completely distant and unstudied and misunderstood architecture that exists within what we refer to as Afghanistan. You know, many Afghanis wouldn't necessarily choose Afghani as their first identity. Uh, you know, it would arguably be their families, their tribes, uh, competing for uh, low-level power within, you know, small villages, as opposed to part of this grand idea of a Taliban or, or, or whatever. And that was something we told ourselves because it was black and white. Anybody that uh, was against us was a Talib. And, you know, that was, that was a simple way to do it. There was a, because we had to. Right, we had to, and I, I was part of that as well. And I, I, you know, while I sleep easy at night, it's certainly something that's worth debating and exploring because we we didn't understand what we were doing, and I mean, we broadly speaking, right? Maybe on an individual level, especially those in the front lines, the soldiers probably understood it better than uh, up higher in the kind of echelons, uh, but we certainly didn't really have a good grasp. Uh, and I'm happy to be challenged on this, but uh, I certainly uh, haven't seen anything that would that would clarify this for me or, or, or show me how we understood the actual, and again, I'll keep using the e word ecosystem because I think it reflects really well that it's a, it's a human terrain and a particular culture is alive. It is not a static that we measure and weigh in, say, black and white. Absolutely not. We are a player inside that ecosystem. And when we enter that ecosystem, we are part of the dynamic and carry our own momentum 
that will have an impact on that ecosystem. You know, the, some people will empower, others will target, uh, and we contribute to that power play and dynamics that exists there. We can't, we don't come onto a, a blank slate and, you know, call the shots as they're, you know, kind of surgically black and white. Sorry, you're going to say something? No, no, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated there by how you're putting that. And I, and I think that's, that's all exactly right. Um, one of the things that occurs to me that people can do or, well, yeah, I'll come on to that point in a moment. One of the things that occurs to me that people can do, people who might be going into service and who are interested in the kind of issues that we're talking about today, you know, it's always possible to go and read, <laughs> download your articles on Just War Theory and, you know, skinny up on your, on your academic writings on these things. But, but in addition to podcasts like this, there's a world of excellent memoirs and novels, which I think are really good food for thought around these issues. I think about the writings of somebody like Tim O'Brien or Phil Clay, Phil Clay today, Tim O'Brien writing about Vietnam, Carl Marlantes, you know, for the for the soldier who wants to for the soldier who wants to think about soldiering or for the person who's not a soldier who wants to think about soldiering. These aren't didactic texts. They're not out to make a point, to prove an argument to you, to build a case, to, to, to build a publication record. These are explorations of exactly some of the issues that you're raising today. And, and across the course of this this podcast series, and you know, fiction and uh, novels in this can be wonderfully imagination, uh, wonderful tools for expanding our imagination and, and getting a more sensitive human grip on some of these kind of issues. So, I would love to think that the people who are listening to this podcast are going off and picking up Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried or Carl Marlante's What It's Like to Go to War and possibly, well, I, you know. Well, I also really recommend they pick up your book. I mean, Victory. Let me just, uh, Victory, The Triumph and Tragedy of Just War. And I mean that uh, sincerely because I think what struck me, and maybe we can, and conscious of the time, you've been very gracious with it. Maybe we can just touch on a, a few points uh, on the book because uh, uh, while it might take us into some different rabbit warrens, I'm, I'm happy to if you if you've got a few more minutes. Absolutely. What is the maybe in a in a in a nutshell? Can you just summarize the thesis of this book, if that's yeah. possible, even in a nutshell? Yeah. Well, so um, I'll take a moment, if if I may. So I went to an academic conference, small workshop honoring. A colleague who had just brought out a manuscript on justice at the end of war. It was a great book and we were asked to respond to it. I had nothing critical to say, so I had to make something up. So what I said was, well, you talk about justice at the end of war, but it's not very clear what you mean by the end of war. This term seems a bit amorphous, you know, it seems a bit spongy. Um, it doesn't give us great analytical clarity on what you're actually talking about. When does the end begin and all of that? So I said, why don't you talk about victory? And everybody in the room, without exception, said, what a stupid idea. Now, that's remarkable because, not because I came up with a stupid idea, that happens all the time, but because academics agreeing on something is really, really weird. 
So for everybody in consensus, I thought, oh, there's something interesting there. How come everybody in this room recognizes this as not something they want to do? And so the question then became, why is it that just war theorists don't speak about, don't engage the term victory? They talk about war. And, you know, if you want to listen to Aristotle, victory is the is the end of war. If you want Douglas MacArthur, and there is no substitute for victory. War is the very object, victory is the very object of war. This term recurs. The Academy of Saint-Cyr in France, yeah, above the gate in French, we teach you to be victorious. You know, there's this notion that war, wars are fought to be won. So why is it then that just war theorists whose business is ostensibly talking about war won't talk about victory? And what I arrived at over the course of this book in a couple of years was, to put it in a nutshell, they don't talk about victory because victory unmasks, or to talk about victory is to associate just war and the wars waged in the, under that rubric as being contests of might, right? That they're just brutish uses of force, you know, uh, how would you put it? Um, there, there's no right and uh, wars don't determine who's right and wrong. It just determines who's left, right? So to talk about justice, to use war as an instrument of justice is always a compromise. It's putting square pegs in round holes. And this is a fundamental compromise at the heart of just war theory. And it's probably a necessary and a pragmatic compromise, but just war theorists don't like to talk about it because it draws our attention to that. And so better to conceal it and to talk about just war as something that's clean, that's sanitary, that, you know, is polished and polite. And, and, and the discourse almost lulls us into thinking that, you know, we can have a clean war, a proper war. Whereas when you, when you bring in the word victory, you, you, you almost bring it to a point, you burst that misapprehension you burst that pretension because you draw attention to the fact that if there are winners there are also losers and that whatever you've achieved you've achieved by killing people and breaking things and you can't get away from that so my argument arising from that is that just war theorists need to think about victory precisely because victory reveals just how bloody and brutish just war is, which is exactly why we need just war theory. And it's not a reason to disavow just war theory. It's a reminder of why we need it, while also a warning against the kind of seduction of just war theory as a kind of a rhetoric, which lulls you into thinking that everything you're doing is morally safe and clean and easy and that there's no remainder, there's no leftover. There's always a leftover. And if, you know, if you wanted to... Um, to put this in kind of figurative terms. So the, the cover of the book is, um, is Ares and Athena, the two Greek gods of war. And Athena is usually, uh, you know, we all know a little bit more perhaps about Athena and that she stands for the idea that force can be, violence can be harnessed to the service of the state, that it can be made rational, that it can serve justice. So, you know, she, her statue stands above courthouses because she channels the instruments of violence so that they serve a proper end and, and reinforce justice rather than undermine it. Ares, on the other hand, is mad. 
He's a brutish lout who careens around the place doing more damage than good. He bashes into every... He's like a bull at a gate. But he just... He can't be stopped. He can't help himself. He just loves a good ruck. Without... And there's no sense or order to him. Now, when we think about just war today, we tend to think about it in the language of Athena. And we tend to think about it as Athena trumping and supplanting Ares. So we're turning Ares into Athena. We're sublimating war. But in actual fact, for the Greeks, you never had Ares without Athena. One didn't supplant or sublimate the other. Each went with the other. So when we, when we have Athena, we also have Ares. So, you know, we might have this noble drive towards just war, but it comes with a brutish underbelly. And you're not getting away from that. And so the point of interrogating just war theory through the language of victory or through the prism of victory was precisely to make that point, to say, Ares is still here. I'm not saying we don't need Athena. I'm not saying Athena is the wrong direction to go, but you're not escaping Ares. You bring him with you. And you can continue that conversation if you wish, and you can continue this kind of thinking, and it's pragmatic and perhaps necessary, but it's not morally hazard-free. Yeah, we come to the cost as well. That's such a powerful summary of... of, of well, what we've discussed, but also of the book, and also resonates again, even just in the language that we use in the military, the su suppressing an enemy, neutralizing an enemy, clearing uh, an objective, right? The language is so surgical, it is so clean. So you then what with, yeah, it's, and, and it's, it's, it's kind of, when delivered in, in a set of orders or in a back brief by, by a really good presenter, you feel like, yeah, this is this is great. We know exactly what we're doing. It's going to be easy. We're going to do X, Y, Z, and you know we will neutralize, suppress, whatever it is. It all sounds so clean, but it's not. And you know, we, we probably need, yeah, you know, and there's a there's a reason those languages come about. And, you know, there's a very good book by a guy called Joshua Goldstein. I can't. Why gender? Gender in the war system? Something like this. And, um, and, he, and he talks about, I won't call them, he doesn't call them the tricks, and I shouldn't call them the tricks, but I, I'm mischaracterizing the argument using that language, but the tricks we pull on ourselves to convince ourselves that it's right to fight, or the stories we have to tell ourselves, or the particular ways we have to tell ourselves that what we're, the, the highly stipulative ways we, we narrate what we're doing to ourselves. And there's so much in there when you just start unpicking it. And, you know, it doesn't make you weaker to do that. And it doesn't risk things falling apart. I think it makes you more thoughtful and more capable. And it allows you to interrogate where you stand in the world, what, why you're doing what you're doing and how you're doing it. So, again, that's why I think something like what you're doing with this is so important, because it provides a starting point or a resource for people who are inclined to do that. You know, um, here's... Here's some uh, here's some food in your ears, you know, to work with. No, I appreciate you saying that, and that's that's you know what partially motivates this podcast and and why it's titled you know the Voices of War because it is about bringing those discussions into our social public discourse, particularly in the kind of military setting that we don't necessarily 
ask about and don't have time or perhaps even the will or like i was saying before it's just it's a it's all a little bit too messy and it's a little bit too unnecessary to uh, hey i've got a job to do don't don't make this messy for me i know what i need to do uh, just give me like you said you know give me the black and white and let me go on and do my job Sure, fantastic. We need that. Uh, and that's why I agree with you. I'm certainly not arguing against Just War Theory. I think it's the best thing we've got and it's a fantastic tool. But I think we, we definitely need to be more reasoned about our application of force, not just at the military level, because, you know, military will go when the government says go and that's our job. Uh, but I think maybe even at the, you know, at our more broader discourse, governmental discourse, even our social discourse amongst our peers, you know, we're very quick to judge, yeah, you know, X, Y, Z, send, you know, send the troops or, or pull the troops out or whatever it is. We're very quick to jump to conclusions without necessarily understanding the context. And perhaps the most important thing that, I, that I'm kind of wrestling with myself is this need to actually understand the conflict that we're getting into or the... Uh, war we're starting or the war we're joining or whatever it is we need to understand the dynamics that are at play there without that we are chances are we're going to be more of a problem than a solution uh, and i think that's kind of where this this all really sits with me at the moment keen i'm very conscious of the time and and you have been <laughs> exceptionally gracious with uh you know we've been going for nearly an hour and a half now it's your listeners i'm concerned about <laughs> No, absolutely. No, I think the, this was great. But what I will say right now is that there will definitely be a second uh, episode to this because I think we have barely started scratching the surface uh, of, some, of some of the topics. And I think there's a lot more we can discuss uh, and talk about. I look forward to it very much. And thank you for your time. I think the, your book is fantastic. I think the work you're doing is great. Uh, and I look forward to uh, touching base again in the near future. Thank you so much. Oh, and I hope, we can, uh, I hope we can do the next one of these over a pint in person. It would be great. Absolutely. Thanks for your time, Keen. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Voices of War. You can access all episodes on www.thevoicesofwar.com or by subscribing wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review as we'd love to hear what you think. If you'd like to recommend a guest for the show, you can reach me on info at thevoicesofwar.com.